Welcome, everyone, to the Instructional Redesign Podcast. I'm Joe Suarez, and I'm joined, as I usually am, with my wonderful co-host, Kara North. Today, we are here together interviewing our special guest, Jonathan Kauser. Jonathan is currently an executive director at a Fortune Top 20 firm with the responsibility for creative services across learning and talent, supporting several hundred thousand employees across the globe. He is also the founder of Arch Impacts, a firm dedicated to helping leaders move along the path towards leaving legacies worth repeating, not deleting. So Jonathan, welcome to the Instructional Redesign Podcast. Kara, Joe, it is my pleasure to be here. I am super excited to be a part of your legacy. Now, some would say your greatest accomplishment thus far would be leading a team of super awesome people that I was fortunate enough to be a part of for a couple of years. And by some people, I mean myself, but maybe the others on the team would back me up on that. But joking aside, I just bring that up as evidence to support the topic that we're going to discuss today, which is leading creative teams. But before we get to that, why don't you just briefly introduce yourself and tell us how you got to this point uh, on being an authority around leading creative teams. I'd like to say I have a really amazing story on having a high moral standard and wanting to be a leader because it just was the right thing to do. But uh, like a lot of folks, that's that's just not true, right? So I, I had a rather successful start to my career as an individual contributor. I was what they called upwardly mobile. I was either dumb, smart, arrogant, or naive enough to question people in authority when they would say things that just didn't seem to make sense. And so I just got this reputation as someone who had great ideas and was willing to share them. And then when the opportunity to become a people leader came up, I was most excited. I'm just being honest because it meant I could make more money. So if you can tell by my story, the reality was... I was entrusted with a great responsibility at first, but I was totally unprepared and didn't really have the right perspective. But that's how I got into leadership. Well, that's a very humble perspective. Um, so how did you eventually get to the point where you had more confidence and you you changed your attitude? So the reality is that the reason I wanted to be here today is, is not so much about how I got comfortable, but because the mess ups that I have made allowed me to learn a lot. And over the past 12 years in leading creative teams, I've got a lot of stuff to share. And my goal is to help people make fewer mistakes than I made. And the best way to do that is to be honest about the mistakes you made and tell people the parts that you've learned through those mistakes. So obviously, when we're talking about leading creative teams, we're talking about creative professionals in the mix there. So just to level set, what would you say is the definition of a creative professional? So I would say that creative professionals are people whose work product shouldn't be, key, key phrase there, shouldn't be measured in terms of quantity, right? Some books will call them knowledge workers. Uh, but the basic idea is the analogy I would use is that if you lead a team and that team creates widgets and success is defined as making 10 widgets a day, and 10 is the clear definition of success, and the process that you follow to make the widgets is set, and the standards are firm, then I'm not talking about 
what I'm about to share, some applies to everybody, but those aren't creative professionals. But if you make widgets and your goal is to create a widget that effectively communicates a message or captures people's attention and it drives some kind of change in behavior, what I'm talking about definitely applies to your teams. So if there is some level of ambiguity that goes around what good looks like in the work that you do, you probably are a creative professional. So for me specifically, over those 12 years, that's looked like leading teams of instructional designers, graphic designers, people who run a video studio, animators, you know, coders or developers, and performance improvement folks. It's important to level set that being a creative professional has really evolved. So I don't know, when I started out, it used to be, you know, here's the, here's the solution. This is what I want. Now go make it look good. And success was very simply defined as, did the person who requested it think it looked good? Now, if, if you lead a creative team the right way, if as creative professionals, we take ourselves the level of seriousness that we need to as the world around us is changing, what we should be after is, here's a problem. And then how can we solve it in a way that provides an impactful experience and it looks good? So in, in that instance, you know, creative professionals, as they've evolved, really it's now about did change occur and does that experience look and feel good? So I just want to throw that out there because I, I don't want I don't want to turn people off who are like, I don't just make things look good. Totally get and respect that. But I, could, I would imagine that you can imagine a point in your career where that's what you did. And depending on where you're at in your evolutionary track as a professional, this still applies to you. Yeah, I can totally relate to that feeling of being someone that is just in a position to make things pretty, at least if not that being my full-time responsibility, it definitely feels like it at times over my career. Uh, but going back to your definition of creative professionals, I like how really you classified it as their uh, subset of knowledge workers. Um, and I know, I think we should just kind of throw it out there that most creative professionals or people that could fall under that category don't necessarily enjoy being uh, classified under that term. And I understand why, but I think it really is apt because kind of what you were getting at was that the output that they produce, unlike other types of work, like we'll say accounting, where it's relying on a, a hard set of facts and tasks and things like that, creative work ultimately comes down to some element of creativity that comes into play and, and putting something together that can't formulaically happen. You can't just bring, you know, you can't start at point A and get to point B with a set path. There has to be some shifting and creative movement along the way. So I'm glad we parsed that out. And lastly, uh, your point about it evolving over time, I agree with that as well. You can definitely see that over the past, I'll say, couple decades, that there's been a shift between um, not just being order takers, but focusing more on business results and the end user experience. And I think both of those together have resulted in design actually being a competitive advantage. 
that companies now are almost expected to have. Jonathan, I really appreciated what you just said there uh, because this year I've transitioned into leadership. And one thing that I've been struggling with as a new leader is it's been really hard to kind of set that standard of what good looks like. And I was kind of clapping behind the scenes here when you were talking about uh, what Joe was talking about, about, you know, it doesn't just look pretty, it's got to function and do something. So I think that that is a great segue into a question I've been dying to ask you is talk a little bit about your kind of leadership principles or the process for leading creatives. Yeah, this is where the hot takes come in. So if you get negative feedback, just send them my way. Um, I'm just kidding. But but I, I always start by saying that there are some fundamentals to leadership that come into play when you're leading creative professionals that just, they apply across the board, right? And those those are things like set clear direction, give people a purpose that they can get behind, clearly explain expectations, including how success will be measured and how what each of the individuals on the team does leads to the team achieving their their purpose and therefore success. And the reason I say that those fundamentals exist is that those are people things. So a lot of us, the first time we experienced planning and purpose and expectations and measurement was in the business setting. But I'm a nerd. I read a lot. I don't just read about business. And the reality is that those things, purpose, impact, relationships, those are just people things. Those are things that people desire in order to be satisfied, engaged, and feel successful. So you cannot set those aside no matter how some how hard someone on your team tells you that I don't need direction or I don't need expectations. I just need to be left alone. That is not true. That Those are people things and they apply to everybody regardless of what kind of team you're leading. But once you get beyond those universals, I've really learned to make some adjustments. And these have helped me in my journey. Joe mentioned in my intro, which was very kind of him, that he was on one of my teams. Uh, really appreciated Joe. He was great. I think we we learned together. We grew together. But he's not alone. I've had a long track record and I've I apologize for any lack of uh, modesty here, but of attracting top talent, developing high-performing creative teams, and then getting people to their next role. I'm going to drop a nugget, a data point. So 75% of the people that have ever worked for me have been promoted. So before you're like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. If you're a leader who wants to get 75% of your people promoted, Maybe it's worth pausing and thinking. Maybe he's dropping some nuggets. If you're a creative professional who wants to be promoted, maybe it's worth thinking. Maybe there's things in here that I can apply to myself. So I will I will go back to being humble now. But I have learned to make some adjustments that have helped me to be successful. And so I'll drop three of them right here uh, in no particular order. The first one, I overemphasize autonomy. I allow people to let their creative process influence the way that I lead the team. 
The reason that's important is that everyone's creative process is unique, right? Some folks like to watch movies while they work. Others like to be in complete silence. Some love to work in a group environment. Other people, they just want to be left alone while they're working. So these creative cycles take time. And that time is measured in hours, not minutes. So you have to allow people to work the way that makes the most sense for them. So that's one of the things. And when I think more about that, I would say it's really important as a leader to slow down and get to know your people well enough to know when their creative cycles are at their peak. So what I mean by that is some of my team, I'll have my one-on-one with them in the morning. Why do I do that? Because they get their creative jam in the afternoon and I don't want to be in the way. Other people, their one-on-one is in the afternoon. Why? They wake up refreshed and ready to get their creative juices on and come the afternoon. They just need a break to, to think about something else. What I just said there is autonomy is important and autonomy is by the individual not across the team. The other part of autonomy, this is going to make a lot of, uh, if we have any corporate people listening, nervous. Creativity doesn't always happen eight to five in the office. So whenever possible, I like to be super flexible on work periods and locations. And that's where that idea of setting clear direction, definitions of success comes in. Because if I'm measuring people on quality and their ability to meet those requirements, Timeliness is always included. I got to drop that. And the impact that the work they do delivers, it's much easier to not worry about when the work gets done and where the work gets done because you know that quality work is getting done. And this is why when I talk about the evolution of the professional, is that's so important, right? So um, the other part of autonomy, I'll go one more on that, is... I don't like to stunt creativity by giving people the puzzle box. And what I mean by that is when we have a problem we we need to solve, I like to give specific direction on what we need to do. So here's the problem we're solving, why solving that is important, what success looks like, and any genuine requirements. But I try not to give a recommendation or suggestion. And here's why. This, This is why I find that important. Because what I don't want is the team to come back with the best version of what I suggested. I want them to come back with the best version of the thing I haven't even considered yet. So that's kind of what I do. And then I do want to pause one more time, one more second to clarify. This is very important. I'm not, hopefully, what you're not hearing is the key to managing professionals through autonomy is to create the Wild West. Not at all what I'm saying. There are tons of rules and boundaries. There are some universal requirements that are non-negotiable. I call these the taxes of being part of an organization. So if your organization believes in productivity trackers, attendance sheets, providing status updates, a certain number of meetings, those aren't negotiable. Those are requirements. That is the tax, if you will, of being part of a a dynamic team. So don't fall into the trap that these stunt creativity. They don't. If you give people the autonomy to work when they want, where they want, how they want, it is not too much to say, I need you to make sure that you're 
status updates are, are in on time. So that's the first one. So let's get into that a little bit. How do you balance that individual autonomy you were mentioning earlier with that timeliness factor and making sure you meet deadlines and, and all the other factors that are necessary to make sure a business keeps going? The reality is for creative work, for knowledge work, nobody really understands how long it takes to do it. So what I always tell my team is you go away, you tell me how long it's going to take to do something, and I will champion that for you till the cows come home. My expectation, however, is whatever you told me, you are going to hit, right? You set your time frame. You told me what's reasonable. No one's going to be able to argue that with you because this is a unique skill set. But if that's what you say, you are going to hit those dates. The second one, this is kind of a hot take. I, th- I think it's a hot take. It's something we don't really talk a lot about because it's honest uh, and it's personal, but I think it's important. It's an area I fell short on early in my leadership career. But you really have to work to protect the fragile ego of the creative professional. And what I mean by that is creativity, design, knowledge work, whatever you want to call it, it's deeply personal. So any negative feedback, no matter how constructively or delicately or kindly it's delivered, can feel like the dagger to the heart for some people. So I go out of my way to help people not take feedback personally uh, using two approaches. So the first approach is we establish feedback standards and a common language around them that we can use with the people we're doing the work for. So I've been doing this a while, but it wasn't until very recently that someone on on my current team uh, put language around it. But basically, whenever we engage on a project, what we say is, when it comes time to feed to to talk, anytime we start on a project, what we do is we will set the stage that when we get to a point that we're going to give feedback, any feedback you give is going to be identified as one of three levels. A level one piece of feedback, that is something that is wrong, inaccurate, or broken. Guess what? If it's wrong, inaccurate, or broken, we will be fixing it. And it just doesn't matter. Level two feedback is, although it's not really wrong, it's not a good experience. Either the user experience or the design is flawed. And by making some improvements, we can really make the experience better. So although it's not wrong, it's really the right thing to do. And so we're going to typically go ahead and make those changes as well. The good news is both of those things really aren't that emotional. It's the third piece that really gets people up. If people get, I should say, if people get upset, it's really the third type of feedback, preference items that are hard to deal with. And when we get to that level three feedback, preference items, they are all negotiable. I would, If I had a whiteboard, I, the reason I feel confident in, in saying level three should always be negotiable is if I had a whiteboard, what I'd do is I'd draw... If you're familiar with DISC or any kind of quadrant model, right? There's two axes and every person fits somewhere on those axes, right? So that's the same for communication or visual design preferences, right? 
So sometimes, believe it or not, you will encounter people in the workplace who are just the polar opposite of yourself. So oftentimes with the creative professional, it's the business leader who has an incredibly different skill set. And we should be very thankful for that because they give us the opportunity to practice our trade because they're good at their trade. But anyway, they view things completely differently. So they will miss the subtle nuances and brilliance of the design. And so they'll say things that we feel as creative professionals are dumb, like, could we make that blue? Or what would that look like if it were a square? And what they don't realize is that when you move towards that personal preference, it makes it completely unpalatable for the designer, right? Dare I say it might even be insulting. And even worse than that, making that change really provides a negligible impact because because we're on that quadrant model, right? You're making it better for 25% of the people who think like that leader. You're making it worse for the 25% of the people who sit in the same quadrant as the creative professional and the 50% of the people who sit in the other two quadrants, they don't even notice. So really you're making a change that adds no value. So when we quantify all those level three feedback items as preference items, we figure out which ones are worth pushing back on. And then I step up and go to the plate and it's my job to show support for the, for my team. And you know, I've found this is a bonus insight. It might get cut, but the most effective way to do that is by using some design thinking principles and getting feedback from the people who will actually be using the thing or consuming the thing that the team is designing. Because leaders or requesters that have preferences will, will very rarely disagree with this powerful statement. The reason we did this was, and you explain why you did something, the impact it has is, and you explain the impact of doing something a certain way, and if you can add, we tested this with your people, and they agree, you can typically avoid overreacting to preference items on feedback. So that's kind of, that's part one. Of, of helping protect that ego. It's so good to hear that, you know, you as a leader and I'm, I'm just even thinking about just this, this week at work, some of the feedback that I've received on things has been kind of that level three, well, move the box over here or, you know, move this here. And I'm like, do you know how much time that that takes? So, um, you know, I've, I'm really just kind of enjoying uh, your train of thought here and with that. And, you know, that's another thing too. So many of us that are kind of um, in L and D or even creative professionals, they um, often maybe fall into it. Right. And uh, with kind of that falling into this kind of work, sometimes, you know, you have to kind of keep going and you don't really stop and think and stop to smell the roses. So I really appreciate what you're saying here. What do you think, Joe? It's funny you bring up your recent experiences because um, I was thinking of some as well. So now I am currently in a capacity where I am at a consulting company and I actually, my past two engagements have been with consulting companies and I went from working entirely internally to now the more of this atmosphere where the customer is always right. So previously, if someone said, let's make this blue, 
I was in more of a position to defend my original design decisions. And if I needed to, I could always pull a card that was basically like, we're all on the, on the same team here. We're all working towards the same goal. And I don't think that adding more time to this is going to be beneficial. Like you were saying, getting things in front of people and getting their feedback and having them support whatever you, you've created, that goes a long way. Um, but now I find myself in the position where not really an order taker, but we're more at the at the call of whatever the customer wants. Yeah, I, I'm not proclaiming to be 100% successful 100% of the time. I've turned around two, two teams to led them through this evolution, if you will. And both times it took multiple years to get to a point where we were winning my words, meaning we weren't doing a bunch of level three feedback more than we were losing. Now, we didn't win all the time, but we got better. So don't feel too discouraged, right? No, Nobody's proclaiming. I'm not sitting here proclaiming to always get it right. I'm just simply saying, taking some at-bats, taking some swings. Apologize, I'm a sports guy. Um, and using that statement that the reason we did this was helping explain the impact it has is and explaining the impact, right? And then when we tested it, your people agree, will help, maybe not in that moment, but the next time they'll view you differently. The, the customer, the client, your partner will view you slightly differently. And you just begin to get some some small wins. Um, and small wins turn into momentum and momentum turns into changing the direction of the ship, right? So uh, I hope you just find some encouragement to, to keep trying uh, because you're doing the right things. All right. Well, speaking of um, various, you know, you were talking about the creatives and, you know, this may be kind of new to people. Do you believe there's a way to foster creativity in teams that you lead, Jonathan? Oh, man, that is a that is a crazy question. Um one of the experiences I've had the pleasure to to have is I got to meet a guy named Professor David Owens. I didn't just meet him. I spent time uh, studying under him. But Professor David Owens from Vanderbilt University, and he wrote a great book called Creative People Must Be Stopped. And that book outlines a process for creativity. So once again, I don't use it all the time, but it's actually kind of brilliant to think that innovation and creativity, it's not just like light bulb moments where you're like, oh my gosh, holy cow, who'd have ever thought, right? No, that's not really how it happens, but what happens is, I guess the way that I would oversimplify what I'm talking about is you will always struggle to be creative when someone hands you something and says, this is what I want. Because they've already put you in a box. And when somebody puts you in a box, it is way more difficult to get out of that box than you think. Even when you think you're outside the box, really all you've done is opened it to realize, oh, it's it's part of a bigger box. So if, if you want creativity, 
to be sparked, you got to get to a point where people come to you and say, I have this problem. How am I going to go about solving it? And then if, if, if you can get to understand why the problem exists, then you can really get into to being creative. So the second part of helping out with that fragile ego is that as a leader of creative professionals, I have to acknowledge that imposter syndrome is a real thing. And if you're not familiar with what imposter syndrome is, it's this false sense of belief that despite any evidence to the contrary, that you are not a loser or not a failure or not messing up, you think that you are. And typically, imposter syndrome will show up as either a perfectionist, so someone who's always working to make it just slightly better, right? Or someone who's what they call a soloist. So I think that definition is, I just, I'm just going to do it myself. I, I, I don't need any help. Just let me do it. It's mine. It's, it's my baby. Leave me alone, right? Or it shows up as the Superman or the Superwoman, like, here I come to save the day. Can't believe I just did that. The internet, it's going to live on forever. But you know, that person who's just like, oh, you got a problem. I'll solve that for you because I am here. Or the natural genius or the expert. But just basically, it's just ways that people show up because really they think that there are moments away from being shown to be a fraud. This is a real thing. And it's it's terrifying if you've ever been in the throngs of helping someone through an episode of imposter syndrome and you're not prepared. But the way that I go about helping people is by proactively setting a groundwork so that way when they have an episode, we can talk about, hey, remember that time when? And then I remind them of an example where they succeeded. And I do it with honest and authentic positive feedback. And so you got to do that proactively so you aren't always playing defense. But don't, don't, once again, don't mishear me. Success is not preventing episodes of imposter syndrome. It's helping people get out of them faster. So if you guys, you guys familiar with the imposter syndrome, you ever seen that? All too well, all too well. And, you know, I like how you describe it as episodes because I, I seldom think of it that way. But as soon as you said it like that, it made me think, yeah, they really are episodes they do come in waves because there are times when uh i'm naturally getting that positive reinforcement and that's the times where i feel like i'm on the top of the world that i'm not to have a huge ego but i feel like i'm just this wonderful designer developer but then immediately i could get some feedback or or something happens that triggers one of those episodes and i'm on the complete opposite of the spectrum so to have a manager that's there to to remind me of all the successes I've had, like you're saying, it's it's not to stop them from ever happening, but it's to help me snap out of it and realize that I am having that episode and, and get back in there like a great coach, a great leader. There's a gentleman named Stephen Gates. Um, he does lots of uh, speaking. He's got the... He's got his own podcast, Stephen Gates, Stephen with a PH. He has some great material on imposter syndrome. 
So the third one is you need to work to establish a team first environment and mentality. So I know immediately everybody's like, yeah, I've been on a team forever. I'm on lots of teams. I know exactly what you mean. Now, what I've found is that's not really true, right? So a lot of cultures have this undercurrent of unhealthy competition and they shield it from the light. Like, you know, like that, my precious thing from uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, they shield it from the light by calling it collaboration. And we've got this healthy pushing of each other to be better. And then they'll say things like, well, we're on one team. How could it possibly be competition? But the fact is, it is. It's competition. You're trying to get people to achieve more by comparing them to other people or the work that other teams do. And the nature of comparison is not collaboration, but competition. So if you find yourself in an environment where you're constantly being compared, you know, look what so-and-so does. Look at what they're doing over there. How come we can't? You're not in a collaborative environment. You're in a you're in a competition. And that can be scary, especially for creative professionals. And then more importantly, a lot of creative professionals have been on teams, but but they're more like all-star teams or like the best of ensembles where it's just, you're the best audio guy, you're the best animation girl, you're the best video, you know, whatever. And, and they operate separately, even though they're part of a team. So you'll know you're in one of those environments if someone loves the audio and the audio guy gets the kudos, right? Or somebody loves the animation and the autom- a- animation gal gets the credit. But rarely does the entire team get recognized in meaningful ways. So as a leader, I like to go work overtime to focus on the group effort to remind people and force at first force people to work together. And what that does is it just, it, it starts to break down barriers over time that people don't even realize they have because they've under this false assumption that I've been on a team forever. This isn't new. Yeah. But when's the last time you handed a piece of work to somebody else and said, Hey, can you help me? When's the last time you said, Oh, I'm really struggling. Can, can you help me think through this? It doesn't really happen as much as, as we like to think that it does. So I really push that team dynamic, genuine team, where we win together, not the collection of individuals on a team. Um, and some of the crazy things people, you know, that I do is we have these buddy chats. So I'll, I'll, I'll match up two people who seem to have nothing in common on the team and say, you know, every so often I'm requiring you to get together and talk about anything other than work. And at first people roll their eyes but they do it enough and they're like, wow, this was actually pretty cool. And then we do these mandatory fun things where we get together and just, I, I guess technically you'd call it goof off. Um, they're not huge stretches of time, but it's just an opportunity to get to know people personally and, and have a little, little bit of fun to once again, build that team. So I said a lot. So I'll just re I'm going to reiterate what I said. So the three things, once you get past the universals of 
purpose and defining expectations and what success looks like, the three things that I've done specifically to lead creative teams are I, I allow a lot of autonomy around how work gets done, but I still make sure people hit the requirements, the expectations, if you will, the corporate requirements. The second I go into ego protection mode, right? I help protect the potentially fragile ego of the creative professional. And then the third thing is I I build that team culture. So those are the big three. So excellent. Thank you so much, Jonathan. This has been just so much great advice. Uh, I really hope people have been finding it useful. Where can people go if they want to connect with you? Best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Last name is C-O-U-S-E-R. And I'm happy to have a conversation or help you think through whatever it takes to become the leader you want to be because you're already there and struggling and you want to get better or the leader you want to be because you're thinking about maybe it's for you and I can help you think through what are the natural consequences of moving from an individual contributor to a leader. That's a bonus nugget, Joe. Kara, leadership, not for everybody. It's true. It's very true. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Jonathan. Joe, Kara, it is my pleasure to uh, spend a little bit of time with you both. 